Welcome back to This Tuesday's Across the Movie Aisle, presented by Bulwark Plus. I am your host, Sonny Bunch, culture editor of The Bulwark. I'm joined, as always, by the award-winning Alyssa Rosenberg of The Washington Post and Peter Suderman of Reason Magazine. Alyssa, Peter, how are you today? I am spiffy. I am happy to be talking about movies with friends this holiday week. First up in controversies and controversies uh, comes news that broke last week, literally, as we were taping the episode that we were doing. Uh, we didn't want to stop it and rejigger everything. We wanted to really sit and think with this one for a bit because it's, it's an important story. Uh, but namely that Jonathan Majors, best known to audiences for his uh, work in Creed Three and in the MCU as Kang in Ant-Man and the Wasp Quantumania and uh, the Loki television show, uh, was convicted of reckless assault and harassment and subsequently fired by Disney from the part of Kang and all Kang variants. Um, uh, that Majors was fired is not terribly surprising. We might want to put on our cynical hats for a moment and make the argument that uh, this was not only the correct moral position, but also kind of a smart business and storytelling play by Marvel as they can now pivot away from the the floundering Kang multiverse storyline thing that they were building uh, to be to to lead the next phase of the Marvel Cinematic Universe, um, uh, and instead focus on something like the X Men or the Fantastic Four and the villains there like Doctor Doom or Galactus, whatever. Those guys are rolling into the MCU, and now they can focus on them instead of uh, you know having to deal with the Kang stuff, and they can blame it on Jonathan Majors. You know, just say, look, we're not pivoting because the story wasn't working. You can imagine Kevin Feige sitting down with a sympathetic journalist and saying, we just had to move away from uh, Kang for legal and logistical reasons. You know, we didn't want to recast. We're very opposed to recasting. We've only done it like three or four times before. We wouldn't want to do it again. Uh, so we're, we're just scrapping that whole storyline. We're going a, di a different way. Um, again, I'm, I'm neither surprised nor frankly all that interested in what Marvel does here, beyond noting that it's a real sign of the franchise's luck that this is the first time they've run into significant extra cinematic headaches like this. Um, I'm mostly interested in what happens to Majors as an actor, as a working actor. Um, after all, he was earning raves. I mean, they were people were talking best actor Oscar talk for his work in Magazine Dreams, uh, which is already in the can. It was supposed to come out, I think, this week um, or, or earlier this month. Um, his performances in The Last Black Man in San Francisco and Lovecraft Country were universally praised. People were, people were in love with Jonathan Majors. Um, he's a man with talent. He is also, rumor has it, not pleasant to be around on set. And now he has this misdemeanor conviction on his record. Um, does his completed work, like uh, Magazine Dreams, does that go in the garbage pile? Does he, does his career end up on the, the ash heap of history. My friend Victor Morton uh, compared Majors's conviction to that of Robert Mitchum, who was sentenced to jail for a year for drug use back in the 1950s, served a couple of months, uh, and was readmitted into the world of acting once he left prison as if nothing had happened. Now, obviously, there's a difference. There's a big difference between doing some drugs uh, and then uh, allegedly hitting a woman in the head and grabbing her hand so hard when she tries to take your phone that you break her finger, and then repeatedly texting her in the hopes of getting her not to go to the hospital because you don't uh, want to have your career messed up. Um, you know, that, that case is, was, uh, I think, slightly more complicated than some of the early summaries suggested, but he's convicted. Uh, I don't think anyone is shedding a lot of tears. He's not playing Kang anymore. Um, no one is owed a career. I do always get a little uncomfortable when we start using professional punishments as a way to enforce moral and legal standards. It's it's tricky. Um, Alyssa, let's deal with the first thing first. Did Marvel make the right call here in dropping Jonathan Majors going forward? 
Yes, and more to the point, I think they probably made the right call in not dropping him until he was convicted. Um, And look, in a lot of the sort of Me Too reckonings that we've been through over the past five or six years, part of the challenge in terms of determining sort of appropriate professional and social punishment was that in some of these cases, the statute of limitations had lapsed. It was not possible to prosecute these people. And, you know, social and legal sanctions were all that the communities where these actions were alleged to have taken place has sort of had available to them, right? I mean, in the absence of the law, social and moral and professional sanctions were what were available. In this case, the system worked the way I think Me Too advocates would say it should have worked, right? It, you know, there was a complaint to the police. It was swiftly investigated. It was prosecuted. Uh, Majors was convicted. And then, you know, his largest employer dropped him from the project, which, you know, in addition to, I think there being just logistical and financial reasons to do that, right? I mean, he's literally not going to be asked about anything else on the press trail. It just, it's an enormous headache for him, for Marvel, you know, it risks another blow up. He also may be spending some time in jail, right? <laughs> and so, you know, I think he's likely to spend some time in jail. I'm not a lawyer though. Um, and so, you know, I think the idea that professional consequences should follow conviction in a situation where the legal process is sort of possible and can play out in an appropriate and timely fashion is correct. And then I think the opportunity of professional rehabilitation should follow the punishment phase of the legal proceedings, right? I mean, I think that there should potentially be a, you know, this should, I think majors will face questions about sort of his behavior on set, you know, his, like, I think he will be under scrutiny, when he serves whatever punishment he is handed down after this conviction. I think that perhaps people who are inclined to excuse bad behavior in a professional context will and should be less likely to do that. But I think he should have a chance to come back. I think he should have a chance to make recompense. Um, And so I think we're actually halfway through a cycle that worked surprisingly well. Let's see if Hollywood and Majors himself can sort of stick the landing on this being a an appropriate balance of you know legal action and sort of business and professional sanctions that are tied to that closely yeah i mean every everyone likes a comeback story right that's that is uh, what we hear time and again i do think that our kind of current mode of social media does not make that sort of thing the preferred ending i think i in part because it just because Peter, uh, you know, you get you get a lot of people who want nice, pat, moral stories like this is a bad man. He should not be allowed to do things uh, that I enjoy, like watch movies anymore. And I, I disagree with, with my friend Victor, but I also I understand where he's coming from and agree to a certain extent that creating a world in which a regular punishment for transgressing against social norms and the law is to say you don't get to work again is bad. I think that's bad. Yeah, so maybe a different way of thinking about this is to think about it in a in a different context. Over the last 10 or 15 years, we have seen um, a, a lot of uh, sort of bipartisan push for criminal justice reform. And a big part of the criminal justice reform is what do you do with people who have been convicted and spent time in jail? They have a hard time getting work. 
And that's, they're not famous. They were never famous. They, in many cases, don't have significant skills built up. And part of figuring out what to do with people who have served their time, who were convicted, often of, of uh, quite, like, unpleasant crimes. They did some stuff that's, like, really not good that we, that we want to punish in society. What do you do is you, one of the ways you bring them back into society productively afterwards is you try to get them a job and you try to get them work. That's not to say that, like, uh, Jonathan Majors has to have a high-profile acting gig afterwards, that he has to be cast as a star and paid millions of dollars or anything like that. That's not what I'm trying to say, that it is that he has some sort of right to it or, or anything like that. At the same time, if someone has, has done something that that's illegal, right, and has been convicted and has uh, served time or, or been punished, however the legal system chooses to, to do that, then at some point you have to say, what do we do with that person? Does the punishment extend forever? Um, because if you are saying that person can never and should never work ever again, or at least not in any sort of, not in the thing that they are good at, not in the thing that they do, then that that I think is is kind of crazy and not sustainable and, and doesn't really sort of, doesn't fit the idea that like, there are some crimes, obviously, that we say, nope, you're you're out of society. Uh, that's it. You're done, right? You kill somebody, you're kind of, that's kind of, you're over. I think but Harvey for Weinstein a, probably deserves to be out of society. I don't think anyone disagrees that... That was the appropriate, like jail and humiliation. Sure, right. So, so many, outcomes. many. There, there is a there is a set of crimes for which we we say that that's like that's appropriate. This is not that, right? This is not a you sir. This is not even a you're gonna lose a huge portion of your life in jail. This is not gonna be decades, you know, of your life in jail. This is the kind of thing that. He's going to be let out. He's going to have served his time or, you know, or done a probation or whatever it ends up being. And then what do you do with somebody like that? And that what somebody like that does is they act. Here's the other thing. I take your point, Sonny, about the social media environment here, and it's not so great. Uh, the social media environment often isn't. The discourse is not, you know, um, the discourse. like it's, it's not super nuanced on X.com or whatever we're supposed to call it. Twitter. No, Don't but, ever call it X.com on this show again, please. Twitter. <laughs> it's, it will always the be The artist Twitter. formerly known as Twitter. Um, but I think that at some point it is quite possible, not certain, that there will in fact be incentives to cast Jonathan Majors for some enterprising outside the studio system producer. Because if you are the first person to do it, four years from now or whatever, uh, then that is something that will get you attention. And Hollywood is all about getting attention. There are so many movies and television shows and productions every single year. And we know this. We just know that, that casting stunts of various types, whether it's, you know, paying Bruce Willis a million bucks to show up for a day on a project that, you know, uh, on a tiny, you know, direct-to-video project that nobody's actually going to watch in the United States. Um, whether it's casting Mel Gibson after he became persona non grata uh, for a while, there is always going to be, I won't say always, there is frequently going to be an incentive for producers to bring somebody in who is going to get attention simply by virtue of being there and maybe deliver a great performance as well as Jonathan Majors is capable of doing. I do think we should draw a distinction between uh, Harvey Weinstein and Jonathan Majors in the yes. sense that Weinstein was – his crimes were committed in the commissioning of his job. Like yes, as he was using his job in Hollywood to 
organize rapes and the such. And that that like is a uh, a, a, a like factor, a, a major a major difference between him and Jonathan. Yeah, I wouldn't invest Majors. in his studio anymore. <laughs> yeah, but uh, so Majors does have a, an analog, and I've seen this come up several times in in discussions, uh, which is Ezra Miller, right? So Ezra Miller, of course, was alleged to have done a number of different things. We talked about it a little bit on this show. You know, uh, WB stuck by him in the sense that the Flash was still released, but of course, there's a big difference between having a two hundred fifty. $50 million movie in the can ready to go and having a bunch of other things that you're going to have to film in the future with the guy. I mean, I just don't, I, I don't think that even that comparison really works either in, in, in part because like, well, what is Ezra closest, Miller doing next? I like, right. The closest thing to a comparison there is, are we ever going to see magazine dreams? And it, right. it, it is a movie that has been seen. It has shown at, it has got played raves. at festivals and got, got ra- great reviews. I mean, and now it's not clear if and when anyone else is ever going to see it. I, I suspect that at some point, it's a finished film that is that has been well-reviewed. I suspect that at some point we will see it. But this is actually something else here is, at least with that movie, like that movie needs to come out at some point. Yes, maybe not for a year, maybe not for a while, but like that movie needs to come out because it's not just Jonathan Majors. There's, uh, there is a, a, a relatively young, uh, promising director there uh, involved in that project. Like there's a bunch of other people who worked on that. It's not just a Jonathan Majors movie. And like people deserve to see it. And if they if they don't want to see Jonathan Majors in it, then they don't have to pay for it and they don't have to see it. And it, it deserves to be released in some form. Maybe not this year, but like, but at some point. Alyssa, I want to ask you: Do you do you trust the critics who have not yet seen it to watch Magazine Dreams and not treat it as a referendum on Jonathan Majors and uh, a chance to like show folks, you know, how much they really disapprove? Because I I have a very sneaking suspicion that that movie is not going to get a fair shake from any. I would I would like to compare the before and after. Rotten Tomatoes scores. I'll put it that way. Yeah, I don't know. Again, I mean, I do think it's somewhat different just in the sense that he will have been prosecuted and convicted swiftly. Like, the system will have worked as it should. Will it ensure? I mean, I don't know. I think it's it'll be interesting to see. I just, it's hard for me to predict. Yeah. Predicting that sort of thing is, frankly, it's not very much use. But I am, I am curious. I have suspicions just, again— because of things that you see in social media and year-end roundups and the such, you know, I saw some some guy joke, like, oh, I bet all the critics are going back and scrubbing their rapturous praise for Jonathan Majors. I'm just like, why would they? It's not, but it's certainly in the back of some people's minds. All right, uh, so what do we think? Is it a controversy or a non-troversy that Jonathan Majors' career is, at least for the time being, uh, finished? Alyssa? Uh, it's a non-troversy, and it's good when the legal system works. Peter? Well, it's a non-troversy in, in the sense that Alyssa is describing, but the whole thing is kind of a big controversy, right? It's a big, like, it's a big kerfuffle, right? It's a big mess. Marvel, Disney, like, the, those two sort of entities bet five years of the biggest franchise in Hollywood on a guy who they had who they dropped after he was convicted. Uh, and, like, that's that's a mess. But to be fair, after the uh, franchise had sort of started going sideways. That's so. also true. It is both a controversy and a non-troversy uh, in the sense that it is not a non-troversy that he was convicted. And it is it is potentially a controversy if he is kind of made a pariah forever. 
I have issues with that. All right, uh, make sure to swing by Bulwark Plus for our final Friday bonus episode of Across the Movie Aisle in 2023, as we are going to ask each other what we're most looking forward to in 2024. Big year coming up. I don't know, there's some political stuff going on, but mostly big year for movies. I'm very excited. All right, uh, now on to the main event. Maestro, directed by and starring Bradley Cooper as Leonard Bernstein. Maestro is the story of a famous and successful man who nonetheless feels very stymied by his sexuality. All the professional success in the world can't make him happy. He just wants to be with dudes. Uh, too bad for his wife, Felicia, played by Carrie Mulligan, who is cut off from all of his affections as a result of this. Uh, or his daughter, Jamie, played by Maya Hawke, who is embarrassed about rumors both of his infidelity and his homosexuality. Um, I will. I want to say something nice about this movie before I try to explain why it does not work at all at least for me, you can really feel Cooper exploring different visual ideas as a director. I really liked his A Star is Born, and I think that there's a lot of interesting stuff here visually in this movie. You know, great moments of characters kind of running through doors, and they cut straight to other buildings, and it shows a passage of time. And there's also this kind of Fantasia musical sequence that shows Felicia through the power of song and dance that he is very, very gay. Here is my uh, problem with the movie. That's really all it cares about. It's a very strange picture. And then it presupposes not only a deep knowledge of Leonard Bernstein's work, but also his impact on the culture writ large. We are told, we're told, 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 time and time again, that Leonard Bernstein is this great figure who has made people love music and educated the masses and brought the world of classical music to new heights and, and to the people, and et cetera, et cetera. But we never really see him doing it, or at least we don't see very much of it. You know, we get a glimpse toward the end of him running a classroom uh, before he immediately seduces the boy he was inspiring. And I, I have no sense I have no sense at all after watching this movie why he mattered as an artist. I just none at all. And you can contrast this to last year's Tar, right, where Bernstein is name-checked uh, by the title character early on, and then we see him briefly on an old VHS that Lydia Tars, played by Kate Blanchett, is watching after her fall from grace. Tears are in her eyes as she listens to the man uh, she described as her mentor explain the power and the accessibility and the universality of music and how, you know, from the highest notes to the lowest gutter music, it, it all moves people, and that's great. And I, I gleaned more about his immense talent and his immense impact in those snippets, those minutes of film and tar than I did in the entire two plus hours of the movie that hit Netflix this week. Uh, Maestro really suffers badly coming on the heels of both Tar, which again is a movie that much more deftly deals with the power of music and the, the persecution of complicated artists and, and the complicated ways their sexuality you know, in, influences their work. And also Oppenheimer, uh, a, a movie that like Maestro is a biopic spanning decades dealing with a towering figure from mid-century America that hops back and forth between black and white and spans a great deal of time. Um, as good as Cooper and Mulligan are in this movie, and I think they're quite good. The acting is is top-notch from top to bottom. It doesn't really matter because I don't have any sense at all of why this story matters. Just did, It did not matter to me at all. 
Peter, when we were texting right before the show, you uh, you said you kind of loved it because of the sound mix. How did it sound in your basement home? Yeah, so that's maybe the most Peter Suderman compliment that I could I could give to a movie. But man, this movie sounds incredible. And to me, so I have nice speakers in my basement, and I watched this at home. And the sound design in this movie is just immaculate. And it's uh, frankly, it's the best sound design for music in a movie, which is not to say, which is different than, say, sound design for special effects or even for dialogue, although the dialogue mixing in this movie is incredible. There's all of this, like, quite complicated talking over dialogue that is happening that is really nice and clear, but also a little confusing in exactly the way that it is when two people are kind of talking over each other, but also kind of able to understand each other. This is really difficult to get right on screen and out of speakers, and this movie does it really well. Uh, and this is this is something that this movie shares with uh, Bradley Cooper's uh, previous directorial effort, uh, A Star is Born, which was a movie that I saw in the Dolby Atmos house at the AMC Georgetown back when that had the, the best sound in D.C. And I was just blown away by the way that that movie captured live music sound. Similarly with Maestro, I was just entranced and enraptured by the way that this movie presented Bernstein's music in its score, both uh, just both non-diegetically and diegetically, both when he's play when the music is happening in front of you, and also when it is just sort of in the background, uh, more like a traditional score, it just sounds fuller and richer and more lively and more full of life than almost any other movie about music that I have ever encountered. And I think to me that goes to some of the concerns that you had about why this movie mattered, because. I found the movie demonstrating the power of Bernstein's music and the the intensity of it all the time just because of the way that it presented the sound. And the music just came alive uh, on the soundtrack of this film. And this is clearly... Bradley Cooper has a good sound designer and is working with a, a professional who gets this. But also it's something he very clearly cares about, because like I said, the only other movie that I can think of in the last decade or so that blew me away, not not just sort of with a overall, not like with a super cool score like in Tenet uh, or just really great sound design, period, like in Arrival, but with the way that it presented musical sounds. The only other movie that I can think of is a star that that like affected me like this is a star is born and i mean frankly like the taylor swift move, concert movie annoyed me with the the way that it was recorded uh, and listening to this and hearing how how rich and full and evocative the this music was i didn't feel like i needed some sort of scene that was like oh here's why his music is great i was just hearing it being great the whole time and then you combine that with all of this absolutely incredible work from cooper as a director this movie is so visually interesting sure it's not oppenheimer I, I will give you Oppenheimer is better. It is also not quite as complicated and ambiguous uh, a character study as Tar. I will give you Tar, my favorite movie of last year, is a better film. 
But this movie is, I mean, frankly, I can see somebody complaining that it's a little over-directed, but I actually loved the way that it was so exuberantly directed and, and that it just seems to kind of flow from this intense like a, a desire to create intense uh, sensation in in the viewer and to capture the intensity of emotion of so many moments, th- that intensity then fits with Bernstein's music and the presentation of it and the character itself. It's not a perfect movie. I do think it's it's a little bit one note because it's constantly just uh, just sort of emphasizing, well, he was many people, and then it actually just sort of shows him kind of as two who are sort of integrated but sort of not and it's complicated and that like the character study itself is a little bit simplistic i i i agree but the performances from bradley cooper and carrie mulligan at the center of this are are really rich and really detailed and the way that they manage to to both do a bunch of very noticeable character work all of these ticks all of these verbal mannerisms without coming across as just sort of, I don't know, Jim Carrey, like, nutty, over overdoing it, like, uh, types. They seem to capture, to me, it, it felt like they were actually capturing something a little bit hyper-real, but also naturalistic in, in their performances. And I love the way that they just interacted together, especially in the first 40 or so minutes of the movie when they're getting together. These scenes are just delightful. I don't know. I, I, again, I, I, I will also say... I finished the movie maybe 25, 30 minutes at most before we started this podcast. So I am still processing it. But this this movie, this movie really moved me in a in a bunch of ways. I I I just thought it was it's very powerful on a craft level. It's a little simplistic on the story level. And yet even on the like even like within the there are so many like nice little scenes that could have been very obvious. And they are written in a way that's like, oh, no, this is this is a way to give us information that isn't just like, well, we're going to have somebody look at the screen and say, boy, doesn't it suck to have cancer? It's it's a lot it's it's really done on a micro level and on a on a craft level. And it presents somebody who is presents characters who are complex and ambiguous in ways that I appreciated. Alyssa, what did you make of Maestro? Yeah, I think Alyssa's going to disagree with me. I very much disagree with Peter Schuderman. In fact, um, before this podcast started, I started making a list of things that (laughs) you would not know about Leonard and Felicia Bernstein from watching this movie. You would not know about the Young People's Concert series that Bernstein used to sort of help grow the audience for classical music. You would not know about his Harvard Lecture series that was sort of an incredibly important mid-century high culture event. You would not know about the concerts that he'd conducted to celebrate the end of the 1967 war in Israel or the fall of the Berlin Wall. You would not know that the Bernsteins were the subjects of Radical Chic, uh, one of the most important pieces of sort of 20th century magazine journalism. And you wouldn't know that in part because you wouldn't know that they were raising money for the Panther 2021, uh, that Felicia Bernstein was an early and important anti-war activist, um, you know, in 1967, when public sentiment had not really turned against the Vietnam War completely in the way that it would in 1968. You wouldn't know that she did important work on parole reform uh, in New York State, or that she had this long-term relationship with Richard Hart, or that she, uh, you know, made her debut at the Metropolitan Opera. In short, you wouldn't know why the Bernsteins mattered. <laughs> And, Thank you. And, you know, Peter, I 
I will always defer to you in matters of sound design. But Leonard Bernstein's life, his importance, are an argument that to get people to appreciate classical music, you need to do more than just play it. And for example, you know, you wouldn't know that Felicia Bernstein was an incredibly important mid-century style icon, right? She was one of the most popular, you know, sort of was considered one of the most best-dressed women in the world. And she used her style and the new looks she debuted at the opening season of her, you know, the opening of her husband's concert seasons to draw attention to classical music, right? I mean, these sort of public outreach efforts and communication and political involvement of the Bernsteins were, you know, an argument that high culture could coexist with sort of with radical politics, with reform, that the American public was smart enough to appreciate classical music in sort of a mass way, right? It was the Bernsteins' lives were an argument about what kind of people Americans were. And Maestro has no interest in that argument. It has an interest in the music itself, but by completely— Barely. Only barely. Well, I, I, I disagree with Peter. I, I, I saw this in a theater. It, it sounded fine. But the music itself is such a tangential part of the actual story. You never see Bernstein sort of up against another contemporary composer. The music, the movie certainly conveys that he's an enthusiastic conductor, but it doesn't bring you into, you know, what made him, what made the music that he conducted more powerful? Was he a better conductor technically? The movie has no answer. It has no particular interest in the fact that Bernstein's career as a composer never quite matched his career as a public communicator about classical music. And that was a source of sort of dissatisfaction and tension in his life. And to the extent that I'm willing to concede to Peter that Maestro makes an argument for the power of Bernstein's music by presenting it beautifully— it then misses the point of the work of Bernstein's life, which is to communicate about classical music and to make an argument about who Americans were because they could appreciate it while engaging in all of these other issues. And I, I find this movie so technically impeccable, but the further I get from it, the more I am just really irritated about it. It feels so technically precocious and intellectually empty and disengaged. And that disengagement really started to curdle for me into feeling like the movie is almost is homophobic in an old-fashioned sense, in that not that it finds gayness disgusting or aberrant, but that it finds Bernstein's sexuality to be the only and most important thing about him. And sexist in the sense that Felicia Bernstein's marriage is the only thing that matters about her. And the airlessness of the movie is so crabbed and limited and in contradiction to its artistic exuberance that I actually I actually kind of think of it as a major failure because a movie or even, you know, really justifiably a miniseries about sort of mid-century classical music, you know, directed with this flair and taste and enthusiasm, but with any ideas at all, could have been extraordinary. And instead we have this, which I think has turned a lot of people's heads, but that demonstrates complete contempt for what is in the heads it's turning. 
Peter, I'll let you answer that in one second. I, but Which I, I part of just, it? Where is he going to start? I, 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 wanna, I, I want to thank Alyssa for saying that the movie feels homophobic because I feel like if I say it, it comes across wrong, being the reactionary on the panel. But the, the movie flattens his entire existence into, you know, he really liked dudes. And that's like the most important thing about him. And I was, I was just like, I, okay, we get it. It also I, doesn't like, mention it, any of but, his AIDS activism, right? But I mean, it, like, and it, yeah. and it doesn't, it doesn't talk about how it doesn't talk about how those relationships shaped his music or like the the actual work he was doing. I just, I found it, I found it weirdly one note. And as you say, Alyssa, like uh, like almost homophobic in a weird in a weird way that it like defines him solely by his sexuality. And I was just like, I this, you know. Again, as somebody who is not an expert on Bernstein at all, like who knows him from Radical Chic and Kingsley Amos's very veiled portrait of him in Girl 20, like I was just like, okay, why why do I care about this guy? Well, I learned more about him in literally three minutes from Alyssa Rosenberg than I did from two hours because from Bradley Cooper. Because if we didn't Cooper. have this guy, who would Lydia Tarr have learned from? It's, it's the only thing that matters about him. I like, again, I, I, watched this, I watched this whole movie and I just sat there thinking to myself, why does he matter? Why does he matter to us? I don't know. I, I still don't know, frankly. I'm sorry, Peter, uh, defend your favorite movie of the year, Maestro. <laughs> it's definitely uh, not my Alyssa favorite movie Rosenberg, of the year. Please. It might end up at some place on a best movies of the year list. Again, I'm still thinking about it. Uh, I totally take Alyssa's points. Like, I don't really disagree, except if you want to learn something about a person, like you could read their Wikipedia page or, you know, or a, like a, a biography, right? You could like read a book. You just told me a bunch of stuff that I can find out in a book. What movies do that books don't do is they can capture, they can capture the feeling of being in a room with the person, what they were like outside of the frame. And this movie... I think often gets, it really tries, and it occasionally, I won't say often, it occasionally gets real close to a sense of what this person was like when he wasn't in public view. And there's that very sort of important, a little bit on the nose interview segment that happens, I don't know, 25 minutes into the movie, something like that, in which he is asked about his his many roles. And he talks about the difference between being a public performer and being a private composer. And part of what Cooper is interested in here, a big part, maybe in some ways the only thing that he's interested in, is this gap between here is who the person is that you you have seen on all of the on TV a bunch, right, on, on screens, and who has been this the famous educator and, and sort of public figure. But he was someone else behind the scenes. He was someone who that doesn't fully capture. And yet that behind the scenes person, angst ridden, depressive, awkward with his wife for uh, a bunch of reasons, right? Not least that he was gay, but also just like that he was clearly a difficult person in a bunch of ways, a difficult person in ways that she kind of understood. He also kind of understood, but also both of them kind of refused to acknowledge. Uh, again, this is a, is a a little like uh, May, December, it is a story about people who both have a lot of self-knowledge and also really lack it. That's part of what I appreciated about it. And the movie is an attempt to capture the other stuff that isn't that isn't going to be on the list of why he is great accolades. And I think in a lot of ways, it's like again on on first viewing, I, I agree with the one note 
uh, like point here totally. Like it, it does reduce him in some ways. At the same time, it attempts to locate a non-public version of him that you wouldn't that you wouldn't encounter if you were just trying to learn about why he was great. But if his if he's someone whose life is so much a public statement, then for the movie to work, doesn't it have to connect the public and the private self on some level or ex- at least explain how the private self fed the public image, right? I mean, does his marriage to Felicia sort of work and matter because they are kind of equally yoked when it comes to this grand cultural and political intellectual project? Like, does that allow him to pursue this passion in a way that's more successful or more, you know, sort of more accepted? I mean, Bernstein early in his career, I believe, discussed the possibility of coming out and living as an openly gay man and didn't do that. And so, you know, what does that choice mean, right? I mean, you start... (laughs) What does it mean for music? I mean, I just, you know, you talk, we talked a little bit last week about sort of why, why you felt like Poor Things was smug, right? And this is a movie that feels smug to me in its sort of insistence to, it's like, to its assertion of knowing Bernstein while seeming to ignore or reduce so much of him, right? I mean, it's, it feels to me like it pretends to psychological acuity Yet that acuity is sort of laced with contempt for the things that make Bernstein, you know, sort of a powerful figure and someone who is really has no comparable equal in American culture and politics today. The movie just seems so deeply uninterested in everything that mattered to Bernstein, again, outside of one very specific and narrow avenue of his life, that I I, I, I watch it and I... I, I, I know, I, I understand it's not fair to compare it to Oppenheimer, which is the best movie of the year, and, you know, uh, Again, no spoilers, my friend. But the, but the, well, I haven't, I haven't finalized my list yet. Uh-huh. We'll see. But, yeah. but it's, you know, I, but like, you compare it to, you compare it to that movie, which very deftly moves between Oppenheimer's private life and his personal life and his public life and his political life. And like, that's what a masterpiece looks like. And this is what... This is what a a very skillfully but ultimately shallow piece looks like. Well, I, I agree it's not a masterpiece, and I agree that it's very skillful. I'm not sure I think it's ultimately shallow. I think that it's narrow, that it's that it's microscopically focused in ways that are not always to its benefit, but that are interesting and that give it that that allow it to do something that a more straightforward or even certainly I mean like I I guess yes again if we're comparing it to Oppenheimer eh, you could have been better man like it, this you could have made a better movie here it's been done we can see it six months ago um, but that that allow it to do something that a more conventional biopic structure wouldn't have been able to do and that allow it to do something that a sort of I, I, I'm gonna I, I mean this neutrally, even though it's probably gonna sound a little bit uh, like I'm trying to be cutting, but like a recitation of accolades can't do, right? Like like recitations of accolades are, are interesting and useful, but I wanna know something about the other stuff. The stuff I wouldn't see if I Googled the 
the person. You don't have to have a recitation of accolades. You just have to show why he matters. Instead of, as you say it, there's this ridiculous interview sequence where the interviewer's like, you are the greatest. And all of these people recognize how great you are and all of these things. And you're so important to the world and everyone looks, and it's just like, ah, uh, okay, why? You can't just, that's a terribly written scene. You can't just say that and then have us accept it. That's not how movies work. I accepted it. It seemed Ah! fine to me. Sounded so good on big speakers. (laughs) I'm sure. It's actually, this this is the whole thing. I'm like weirdly overcome by the fact that Bradley Cooper is either a speaker's guy or higher, just like uh, was like, bring me Hollywood's best speaker's guy and has made two speaker's guy movies. That's actually what I'm saying here. Also, like, that's fine. He's a he's a good fancy director. Like, there's some great shots in this movie. That's so what you're saying is he's a homeless man's Dennis (laughs) Boone. All right. Uh, so, what do we think about what do we think about Maestro, uh, Alyssa? Thumbs up or thumbs down? Uh, thumbs down, and also a pox on the audience. I saw this movie with, which was the single worst movie audience I've been subjected to. Definitely. Say more. Oh my lord! The person who sat next to me was the loudest eater of popcorn I have ever encountered in oh, my the worst. 39 years on this planet. There was someone who dropped an entire bag of M&Ms behind me. There were people who came in <laughs> late and whispered to each other. And I just, uh, I wanted to Netflix, I am convinced Netflix sun. peppers these audiences with bad audience members as a reminder that you should be watching things at home on your 17 speaker setup in your basement in your uh, townhouse in Washington, D.C. That, that's Or at an Alamo draft house, to be clear. Yeah. Uh, Peter, thumbs up or thumbs up? I think there's actually only, I don't think there's 17 speakers. I'm not sure, actually. Um, uh, I, I'm going to give it a thumbs up. Shameful. Uh, Thumbs down (laughs) for Maestro. All right, that is it for this Tuesday's show. Many thanks to our audio engineer, Jonathan Siri, who is our best speaker guy. He's the Bulwark's best speaker guy. And without him, uh, the program would sound much worse. Make sure to swing by Bulwark Plus on Friday for our bonus episode. Tell your friends a strong recommendation from a friend is basically the only way to grow podcast audiences. If we don't grow, we will die. If you did not love today's episode, uh, please complain to me on Twitter at Sunny Bunch. I'll convince you that it is, in fact, the best show in your podcast feed. See you guys on Friday. Mm -hmm.